Welcome to the Etobicoke Historical Society's monthly oral history podcast. This podcast is one of a series of interviews of senior Etobicoke residents in the 1980s. The interview tapes were recently discovered in the local history room at Richview Public Library. We would like to thank the Toronto Public Library for giving them back to us so they could be made into these podcasts. These oral histories are a valuable and unique view into the history of Etobicoke in the early part of the 20th century, as seen through the personal experiences of local residents. We will be presenting a different interview each month. We hope you enjoy them. Etobicoke, what year was it? That. 1921 was our first year in Etobicoke. Okay, and you worked in Toronto for your father. That is right. My father had a very small printing business at that time. He bought it in, when he came out of the army in 1919. <coughs> now, that meant you had to travel back and forth. Now, how, how did you get day. back and forth? Well, uh, the only form of transportation at that time was the train that came into Islington Station. and. Um, uh, the 8 o'clock in the morning Guelph train was the way we went into West Toronto. We had to walk from Poplar Avenue to the station in Islington. Coming home at night, we caught the 5 o'clock Teeswater train in West Toronto. And our plant at that time was on Dundas Street. It was only a matter of uh, five or so minutes to walk from our business to West Toronto Station. We caught the 5 o'clock Teeswater train and we walked from Islington Station to Poplar Avenue. Now, that, that, that was good for Monday to Friday. Now, you worked Saturdays as well. We worked Saturdays until 1 o'clock, and of course, couldn't get a train, so we had to use the Guelph radio car operated by CNR from Keel and Dundas Street out to Poplar Avenue. So it dropped you right off the It front. dropped us off. Not exactly there. They had a stop further up the highway opposite a farm gate uh, of the farm of uh, Willie, William Marshall, whom everybody called Big Billy Marshall. Uh, to, not to be confused with your... Not to be confused with my father-in-law, Little Billy Marshall. Okay, now, um, how much did, the, um, did it cost to get back and forth then? At that time, uh, we used to buy a book of tickets, and, and they weren't actually cardboard tickets, they were paper. Uh, and uh, you, you bought them on a monthly basis, and, and uh, the, the conductor would punch them every morning when you went on the train. And I, I'm not too sure about the cost of the monthly book, but I would say in the neighborhood of $3 for a, a book of tickets. That was for the train itself. That was for the train itself. Not the radio car. The radio car uh, was far more expensive, so much so that lots of times my father and I would not take the radio car. We would take the old streetcar that ran along Dundas Street. I think it, it used, some of them used to turn at Gilmore Avenue, but some went down the hill to the old Lampton Hotel. And if he wasn't too busy on the, on the Saturday afternoon and we had a fair amount of time, we used to walk from the old Lampton Hotel to Poplar Avenue because uh, he couldn't see uh, paying. I think the fare at that time might be 50 cents. For one way. For one way and one person. Mm -hmm. 
So it was cheaper to walk than pay the dollar for that. But if, if it was a bad day or he wasn't feeling like the walk, then he'd say, let's take the car right out to Poplar Avenue. Now, how far of a walk is that? Well, I would say that it's a good two and a half miles. Uh, I, I would be guessing at that. All right, now, um, in, in Islington at the time, there, wasn't, uh, there was quite a few uh, social events which took place, yeah. um, which mainly were organized by the local people. Yeah. Um, um, you used to play an instrument, I, I played a violin from very, very early age. My father was a semi-professional musician and uh, came to Canada with the intention of following music as a profession. He played in the in the theaters in Toronto, the old Chase Theater, Hippodrome. He played with uh, John Arthur and Roman Alley and people that were in the theater at that time. Uh, he didn't intend to go into the printing business. However, he didn't like the, the music uh, as a trade. He, he didn't think it was uh, lucrative and, and uh, he didn't like it. He didn't feel comfortable with it. So he went to work at his trade, which was a printer. He bought a little printing business called Fairbanks Print Shop, uh, and then uh, I, I followed along in, in a musical way. Uh, I uh, uh, learned to play the violin when I was five years of age, and at that time he was running an orchestra at Zion Methodist Church on Sinclair Avenue, and as a little boy I played in the orchestra. When we moved to Islington, we formed a little group that played in Islington United Church Sunday School in the basement of the old church, and I played violin along with, I'm trying to think of the names of some of the people, uh, I'm not too clear on, but I know it was a, probably a dozen of us, but there was one chap that did play violin with me whose name was Mercer Garbutt. My father was associated with a lot of bands in, in, in Toronto. He played with the 48th Highlanders, he played uh, the Service Corps Band, he was bandmaster of the Service Corps Band, so I sort of followed along that too, because I learned to play a clarinet as a boy. Uh, and uh, from that, uh, and the church association, I met a man called Mercer Garbutt, whose family had been around this area for a long time. And Mercer and I went out and we bought saxophones uh, and we started a little dance orchestra. And after 10 lessons of the saxophone, we decided we could play for a dance. And we played for dances in, in Islington School on Saturday night. And I think they called it the Sun, Sunshine Club. Or, but anyway, it was organized by local people and we got the job of playing. And the piano player I well remember was a man called Sid Scott, who lived around this area. Uh, I can't remember the other members of the band, but we must have been god-awful. But we got paid, I think, according to the attendance. If they made money, they paid you. If they didn't, you didn't get paid. Uh, I played many, many other musical places. Uh, I was... Um, I played on the uh, Niagara uh, boats when they had moonlight cru cruises, and, and I played generally uh, square dances and um, things like that. Now, the, um, as, as a 
as you're a teenager growing up and mm -hmm. when you when you moved out here from Toronto um, what other things would uh, would a uh, teenage boy do for excitement uh, in a, a, a in the country well we played hockey on that old pond that swimming pond that was frozen we did that which quite where, a bit where was that located that was uh, located uh, just where the the radio bridge or the railroad bridge cross over Mimico Creek. That's right down by the lake shore? No, 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 that's just near Blue Street, just a little north of Blue Street. Alongside of uh, Etobicoke High School, uh, close to that. And uh, that was in the wintertime. In the summertime, we, we swam in this pond. Uh, coming from the city, I had no opportunity to learn to swim. I was brought up in the city and we played on the streets. And when I came out here, I couldn't swim. And of course, a city boy coming out to a bunch of country guys that couldn't swim was pretty fair game for a ducking or what have you. And I was determined that I would learn to swim. So I used to sneak down after they had finished swimming in the afternoon and practice swimming so I could learn to swim. And I learned to swim in that creek, Mimico Creek. Now, the creek is very, as everyone knows, it's pretty dry very oh. thick how did where did you find a spot to swim the creek was very very a lot wider than it was it was uh, uh, so wide that in the in the summertime or rather in the spring the suckers would come up and we would go sucker fishing at night with a pitchfork and a lantern uh, and we did a lot of bicycle riding in those days we would uh, lots of times Ernie Barrett who was my friend and lived near where I did, we would often uh, bicycle to Brampton. You're young and you're healthy, you've got time, what do you do? Social activity, I went to Islington Sunday School and uh, uh, really it was just a matter of going to Sunday School but my interest was playing in this little orchestra. Now, you uh, lived across the road from, um, from your wife's family, the Marshall family, little Billy Marshall. Uh, how, did you, uh, how did you meet? Well, we met because uh, partly through, through Sunday school, but uh, I think it would be the fact that her father at that time had some cows and used to sell milk, and you took your milk can in the morning and you left your empty can and picked up your other can full of milk and I can remember that was always in the Marshall porch at the side of the house and naturally I became acquainted with the Marshall family and then I was uh, also uh, quite friendly then with the Marshall boys Reg Marshall, Wilbert Marshall and through that family connection I met my wife Besides the um, radio line and the train that came out, the, after, in the 1920s and 30s, there was also a bus line that was started up. Now, who, who owned that? Well, that was uh, operated and owned by two men who, who the name of one was uh, Russell Fife, that's F-Y-F-E, I think. And another man called uh, uh, Bell, Vernon Bell. Uh, he was nicknamed Ding Dong. And they used to operate the bus from uh, the streetcar line, the end of the streetcar line at Runnymede and Dundas, up to the Six Points. 
you remember the what the bus was like? Well, they're all real buses, uh, and uh, I don't think they had any springs. And uh, I know that the the getting up the hill from they had to go down the old road down by the Lampton Hotel, and uh, coming up the, that hill was uh, the road was terrible, and and the buses used to steam, and and they had a heck of a job getting another gear to get to the top, uh, and uh, it was it was kind of rough, but it was was uh, dependable. These two people were dependable, and they they tried to keep those buses running. They ran what every hour? Or? Uh, I think it was every hour, but I'm not positive. It wouldn't be any more than that. What were the seats like in those buses? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, I can't remember. I know they were they were leather covered seats. Whether they had cushions or not, I really can't remember. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. I can't can't remember the interior too well. We're going back a long time. The house that uh, that your father bought on, on Peach Street, uh, Poplar. Poplar. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, when you first moved out here, it was just as a uh, summer home. That is right. It was built as a summer cottage. Yes. Now who yeah. who built those? Um, I'm not sure, but uh, when my father decided to to make it a permanent home, um, which was shortly after we moved there. Uh, the man living next door was a builder. His name was Brooks, Dick Brooks, and he built the addition and, and made that into a winter home. Now, who built it originally? I'm not too sure. Now, uh, what you just didn't have the house? Like what? We had the house was on one fifty-foot lot, and my father bought another fifty-foot lot uh, to the uh, south of the, the cottage. Uh, there was a lot of a lot of trees. There was a lot of fruit trees because it was a fruit orchard, and I well remember the quality of the apple was uh, well, I think far better than we're getting today because these were northern spy apples, and they were beautiful and plentiful. So we used to harvest the apples, of course, and we gave them to friends because we had far more than we could use. Uh, when Dad had the house made into a permanent home, he had part of the basement unheated so we could put the apples and, and produce that he grew from the garden to keep as long as we could. What uh, other sort of um, produce did you grow there? Well, you could grow almost anything. He, he used to get, he got a lot of potatoes out of that ground. Uh, well, the regular garden stuff, I mean, tomatoes, lettuce, what have you. What sort of chores would you have to do after you worked all day in the print shop and you came home? What, uh, what sort of chores would you do around the home? Well, apart from the garden, not an awful lot. Of course, you had the furnace in the wintertime, which was uh, almost a, a full-time job by the time you, you stoked the furnace. And that was coal-heated. That was coal-heated. And uh, then, of course, at night you banked the furnace to keep it going all night. And I remember in the, in the living room at that time, or we called the living room, we had what they call a Quebec heater. Most houses in the country had Quebec heaters. That was one chore. Another thing that we, we did uh, on weekends, uh, and sometimes during the week too, after, after walking home, uh, uh, we would, Ernie Barrett and I would take our bicycles and ride down to the post office in Islington the old Dunn store, and we would uh, get the mail, 
we would buy a paper. Uh, if the weather was too bad, you didn't go, but occasionally, maybe two or three times a week, you would drive a ride down to the village. That took a fair amount of time, too. Did you ever go, um, your, the, your house and the, and the Marshall Farm were, uh, was ha about halfway between the village of Islington and the village of uh, Somerville. Now, you used Islington for most of your shopping and for the post office. Did you ever go to Somerville? Oh, quite often we would go to Somerville, not for any particular reason, except Ernie Barrett and I used to ride our bicycles down that hill. Uh, and, of course, we used to go down Etobicoke Creek, which is at the bottom of that hill. And we would wander down there, maybe do a little fishing. We'd catch some chub or a little fish like that. So we would wander around Somerville quite a little bit. And I remember there was a blacksmith shop at the bottom of the hill. I know the man's name, but I can't think of it now. And uh, that was interesting, too, to watch him work. Now, what, what year would you, would you have seen this blacksmith, or what time period? Oh, I would say uh, 1922, 1923. Did you go anywhere else on your bicycles? Oh, yes. We used to go to Cooksville quite often, which uh, uh, was the, the next place. Well, there was Dixie and then Cooksville. And uh, we used to go up to Dixie. There was a, uh, a, I think there was some dancing up there, or music there on Saturday nights at the old Dixie School. Then there was a there was a Dixie Catholic Church. I'm not Catholic, but we used to go to some of their entertaining entertainment. You would ride your bicycle out on a Saturday ride evening. Ride bicycle. That is right. And then ride home in pitch black. That is right. Did you end up in the ditch often? Oh, not too much, uh, uh, no. Uh, in 1925, I bought my first car, which was a 1923 Ford. Uh, it was a, I don't know what you, coupe we used to call them. I remember one time, uh, they were very top heavy. They, they, were, they were heavily built on the top. And uh, two or three times I turned it over. I remember one time going, coming around the bend at the Six Points on Dundas Street, I flipped it over once there. Uh, you, never knew, you never knew when these things were going to stop on you because uh, I remember we used to have to, uh, uh, if you got low on gas and the gas tank was under the floorboards in the front seat, or in the seat, that's all it was, the front seat, and you had to lift the floorboards up and you had a ruler which was a gauge, a wooden gauge, and you put that in the tank and you lifted it out and you looked at it to see the level of the gas in the tank. Uh, and uh, if the gasoline got too, too low in the tank, it was gravity fed, and I can remember uh, having to come up backwards up the hill at Lampton so that the gasoline would run to the front of the tank. And the same as the hill with Park Lawn Cemetery. Used to, and that was dirt road, and you had to come up there backwards because the gas would run to the front of the tank. They're very tricky to start. Uh, you had a choke wire that you pulled at the front, which set the choke, then you cranked it. And the idea was to hold your thumb away from the handle so you wouldn't break your wrist when you cranked it, because many, many people did break a wrist or sprain a wrist cranking Ford cars. We had a, a hand-operated throttle on the steering wheel. We had a horn that was on the side of the, of the door. 
and this was quite quite a car because we didn't have side curtains. We actually had glass windows. We didn't have an automatic windshield wiper. You turned it with your hand. So you always had to go with the passenger. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the driver had to do it. It was on his side. It made it pretty difficult to drive then. <laughs> well, we were busy. You were busy. <laughs> now, where, was there a Ford dealer out here then, or how did you how did you come about to buy it? Where did you buy it from? No, there was no Ford dealer. There was no car dealer of any kind out here. I think my father bought his car. Uh, in 1923, a McLaughlin Buick car, which uh, was a touring car, and paid $1,410 for it. He bought that from uh, uh, a dealer in, on Danforth Avenue, uh, Grice uh, Rich. Oh, I can't remember the name of it, but the salesman sold him the car and brought the car to our plant on Dundas Street in the city. And as my father didn't want to drive it, I was 16 at the time, and I was designated the driver. My driving lesson was to drive back across the city to this garage on the Danforth. The salesman sat alongside of me and told me what to do. And I will remember I was scared to death because it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon. You had to stop behind all the streetcars, and we went from Bloor and Dundas in the city out to the Danforth. I was driving. He was telling me what to do. When we got out to the dealership, he said, okay, take it home, and away I went all by myself. That was my driving lesson. Yes, okay. Well, it was an experience driving these cars because in the wintertime they didn't plow the roads and, and you would get you would get ruts in the road where the, the cars would make ruts. And uh, sometimes there would only be one rut down the center of the road. So if there was a car approaching, you had to bounce out of those ruts to get to the side of the road to let him through. Uh, and sometimes in bouncing out of those ruts, which might be seven or eight inches deep, you would, your car would swerve and, and you'd have a heck of a job fighting to get it back straight again. And I remember Mr. Barrett, who was the clerk and lived up near Poplar Avenue, he had an old Ford uh, and then he sold that and he got an Overland at that time. I, I don't know what model it was, but we called it an Overland car. And that was really a very, very classy car. But the roads were bad, and the cars were hard to handle, and of course the tires, well, you had no, you had no rim or anything, or a wheel or anything. You took the tire off the rim with a tire irons, and you had a hand pump to pump it up after you patched it, and we always carried rubber cement and patches. I remember one time we went off, I went off with Mercer Garbutt and Reg Marshall, and we went to Wasega Beach in, in an old touring car, and we fixed six tires on the way. Now that means taking them off the wheel, patching them, blowing them up, and I remember they took 60 pounds pressure, and you were damn tired by the time you got pumped up 60 pounds. You used to go on long trips like that, to like say Wasega, because that would be quite a distance then. It used to take, I remember one time we went to Gravenhurst, and it took us six hours because the road Young Street was paved as far as Brantford, or Bradford rather, and the rest of it was gravel road. So what that did to the old tires, you can well imagine. Just tore them apart. Tear them apart, yeah.
Mm -hmm. the, the Humber River um, is a fairly, always been a fairly important river in the mm -hmm. commerce and for, for pleasure. Mm -hmm. But uh, did you use the Humber River at all for, for enjoyment or? The only thing we got uh, out of the Humber River in the way of entertainment was skating on it, and we used to skate on it. And I can remember oh, two or three times where the, the river would be frozen with no snow, and we would skate oh, up to Weston or down to the lakeshore, all this sort of thing. Now, it just came to my mind that there was a boathouse down near the mouth of the Humber where a man used to rent canoes and rowboats. I know the name of it, but I can't think of it. And when I was uh, going with my wife in our, in our courting days, we used to go down and rent a canoe or a rowboat on Sunday afternoon, paddle up and down the river, or maybe even out to the lake if it was calm. How much, do you remember how much you charged for? Oh, I can't remember. To us, it seemed a fair amount. Uh, guessing, I would say, 50 cents an hour. Which is Just guessing. Fair amount for the 1920s. Well, at that time, yeah. that time. Yeah. Now, the in the village, usually there's one, one or two places where everyone congregates. It sort of becomes a meeting place. But where, where did everyone meet in Islington? Well, there was really no planned meeting. Uh, uh, the old Islington school, before the new one was built, was made in the form of a library. Uh, and there was volunteer people. Uh, remember one uh, lady called Kingdom. Uh, she used to help in the library. And a Bessie Marshall volunteered to work in the library. This was only open at certain times. But to my knowledge, I can't remember any one particular spot except when you went for your mail at Dunn's store, which was the post office, uh, and uh, there would, you would naturally meet people there. Yeah, where, where exactly was Dunn's located? Dunn's was located right where that donut shop is now. That's on the north side of Dundas. Right that's the country-style donuts? That's right. Right that's, opposite Thorncrest Motors. Now that's, that's on the west side of, of the... Well, it would the, actually be on the north side of Dundas Street. Yeah, and then the west side of the Mimico Creek? That's right. Near the creek, actually. And then a man called Hopkins opened up a store, a grocery store, uh, on Dundas Street, just a little bit east of the Islington Hotel. And he got a fair amount of trade because uh, Dunn's store was, I, I think they were more concerned with the post office than possibly selling the groceries. But most people, including my own mother, uh, ordered her groceries weekly from Eaton's. And Eaton's at that time had a grocery uh, department, and you would either phone or write, and they would deliver that, mostly on Saturdays, where you would get your week's supply, uh, and then other things that you needed, you would go to Islington, because it wasn't that easy to get down to Islington from Poplar Avenue. So you got most of it from Eaton's. Now this would be Eaton's downtown Toronto? Eaton's downtown, yes, that is right. And they had a truck. I don't remember when, is, when Eaton started delivery out here, but they did have a, a delivery service almost as long as I can remember. And another delivery service too was Canada Bread. Canada Bread came out, I think, two or three times a week. And they delivered around Poplar, Dundas, covered uh, possibly Somerville, that area. 
and you bought your bread and your buns or cakes or what have you from Canada Bread. So you didn't rely too much on Islington for your groceries. Now, uh, what about the meat? Because there was no or next to no refrigeration. You didn't buy uh, too much meat. Uh, you, you bought it, but on a short-term basis. But then again, while my father and I were working in, in the city, any meat we would pick up almost daily on the way to the station at night. So you didn't stock meat. But um, non-grocery items, was there any sort of clothing stores in Islington, or did you buy that in Toronto as well? No, no. At that time, we went down to uh, what we called West Toronto Junction. Now, West Toronto Junction was a separate uh, municipality from Toronto, and they had quite good stores in, in, in that West Toronto section. You would, you would possibly, you might walk down to the Six Points and catch Bell's bus and go down to Dundas and Runnymede and then walk from there or, or take the streetcar. And you didn't consider anything, any walk such as from uh, Dundas and, and Runnymede down to Keel Street. That was no walk in those days. <coughs> well, how about the, you mentioned the telephoning orders into Eaton's. What sort of a phone system was it? Uh, it was Bell Canada that owned that. It was Bell Canada with um, party lines, of course. Uh, and uh, I can well remember my, my wife's people had a phone before we did, uh, and their number was 24-ring-12 or something like that. So that you, when the phone rang, you listened for your ring. Now, your ring might be two longs and two shorts, or three longs and one short, but every time the phone rang, you listened for your, your, your bell tone, uh, and, and you went by that code. Uh, uh, it was gossip, of course, that when the phone rang, almost everybody lifted up the receiver. And you could listen to so-and-so, so-and-so up the street or some other farm talking to her boyfriend or then, you know. And this, this was uh, uh, a sort of a, uh, an interesting thing because uh, we all knew who was getting the call, naturally. You knew what your phone ring was, if it was one long and three short, so you said, well, that's Jones's number, so if you were of that mind and that curious, and, and ladies during the daytime would pick up the receiver. Now, you, you mentioned your uh, father-in-law's farm. Uh, it's on the south side of Dundas Street, or was on the south side of Dundas Street. That is right. Below where the Canadian Tire is now located. It was where Canadian Tire is now located. What, uh, what did uh, he grow? He had uh, cattle or cows, uh, so some of it was in pasture. A lot of it was in garden, and he grew the, the same sort of thing that we all grew, potatoes, beets, turnips, carrots, lettuce, what have you. Uh, and he had a barn where he kept his cows, and then he would get a certain amount of hay off that three and a half acres, which is what he had uh, at the last. Now, he had a, the farm along Dundas Street for quite a little piece, but he sold that and kept the three and a half acres and the old house where Canadian Tire is right now. What about the, um, the police? Now, we've got a metro police force, and it's a big, large thing, and they, the thousands of members. But what about police back in, back in Islington then? 
Well, at the time that I remember, there was, I believe, two policemen. I know one was a man called Suggett. I can't think of his first name. Uh, and they, they more or less patrolled Islington, a lot of it by bicycle. Uh, I remember the, the, um, the police force, of course, expanded. And I remember the, a lot of the personnel up to the time of going into Metro. I remember Andrew, Andrew Hamilton, who was the chief, the youngest chief, police chief in, in Canada, I think, at that time. And he was only 32. I remember a lot of his men, uh, Dan Began and uh, Fred Hill and, and uh, uh, a lot of those people. But I'm not too sure how it progressed. You know, I mean, I didn't pay that much attention to it. We stayed away from the police as much as we could when I was young. Uh, you didn't fraternize with them. You took off if you saw them coming. But they were, how, they were, weren't viewed as friends then? Not, I don't think they were viewed as enemies either, but they were just people that you, you didn't, you didn't uh, uh, associate with. You didn't even talk to them. It was the same in the city. We saw a policeman. We didn't talk to him. We, we got away from him. I don't know why whether we were told by our young, by our people, our parents that, uh, you know, if you're bad, I'll give you to the police or something. I don't know whether that, but you didn't associate or you didn't even approach them. What do they spend most of their time doing? Do you remember? Well, after they got into the cars, of course, they had cars that patrolled the, the township. And uh, uh, at the time I remember, uh, I guess we started to do printing for the, the township of Etobicoke and I would have, we used to print the duty books and ledgers and stuff that the police department used. Now that was my contact with the police department. Uh, at that particular time, uh, then when they went into Metro, some of the, the boys, uh, it was Danny Deegan and Howard Tosh, and Howard Tosh was the uh, president of the police association in Etobicoke. They weren't too happy about going into Metro. They lost their seniority. And while they were promised that they would have the same uh, positions or the same titles or the same wage scale, uh, there was a fair amount of resentment from both Islington and the Lakeshore. Uh, you can imagine chiefs and deputy chiefs who had to come down to inspectors. So it wasn't really a happy time for the police department. When did you start to you set up your own printing business eventually. Uh, what year was that? No, I didn't set my own. I worked for my father. And uh, that was in 1919, and I went to work, I think, in 1920. Now, your your printing business has since moved to Etobicoke. It is, uh, yes, it is in, in, in Bellevue, Bellevue Road, yes. Now, what, when did you, uh, or when did, do you remember when that, then that printing firm started working, like when you first started doing work for the uh, township? Yes, I, I would say right after we moved to, to uh, Islington in 1921, we started to work for the township after that. We had a fair amount of competition from the uh, Charters Printing Company of Weston, whose representative was a man called Wilson, and he was also the editor of the West Toronto uh, newspaper. I can't think of the name. But anyway, uh, between the two of us, there was a fair amount of, uh, of competition for the printing. Up until the time we started to work for the township, charters of Weston had the whole thing. Was there, uh, 
How many, remember how many newspapers there were? Or? Well, you mean the Toronto papers? Well, or the Etobicoke. Well, there was no Etobicoke paper at that particular time. The West Toronto, oh gosh, what did they call it? West Toronto something, published by Charters, and their editor was this man Wilson, and, and that, was, that was sent out from West Toronto. And that was your only newspaper out here? Local paper. They, they covered uh, items from Weston, uh, Islington, Lapton, Somerville, the whole area. Now there wasn't, uh, there weren't any movie houses out in the Islington area. Did you go down to one in, uh, any particular one you went to in Toronto? Yes, we, there was no movie houses in, in, in Etobicoke, of course, but we used to go to the Beaver Theatre, which uh, was uh, situated, I don't know if it's still operating now or not, but it was on Dundas Street down almost to Keel Street, opposite High Park Avenue, and we used to go down there. Now, uh, there was the vaudeville houses in Toronto, like Shays and a few more of these places, and Mr. Barrett as clerk. He used to go down every Friday to see the township lawyer. And as I was a friend of Ernie's, very, very often I would accompany them downtown along with Ernie and Mrs. Barrett. And then after he had completed his business with the lawyer, the township lawyer, he would take us to Shays Hippodrome where we would see six acts of vaudeville. Uh, and that was before the movies came in, before the sound movies came. And then we would come home, and I think that was that was the the brightest thing in in my week uh, to see these vaudeville people. I mean, we would go Do back. Remember to, any any well, particulars? there would be Al Jolson and all these big name people that were more or less starting out in their careers, uh, comedy people, dance people, musicians. I remember one time we saw Blackstone, the the magician, uh, who didn't he came. Uh, and then, but one thing that I do remember very, very vividly is the fact we would come driving along Bluer Street. Then when we crossed over into the township, uh, coming up the park lawn section there, we would come from the city, bright lights, suddenly right into the darkness. There wasn't a light to be seen. It was just black. And, and it always, it always, it sort of stuck in my mind that all of a sudden from the light to the black, Tobika was black. There might have been a light at the corner of Prince Edward and Blue, I don't remember, but it was, it was pretty black. But this was, uh, I, I enjoyed that so much. And to be invited by Mr. Barrett and his family to go down to the city and see these extra special theaters, which I would never have seen any other way. What, what sort of uh, theatrical groups would make their way out to Etobicoke? Entertainment groups? Mm -hmm. None to my knowledge. They never... No, a lot of it. There would be local uh, things like that play I was telling you about put on by the church group. Uh, but no, no, no uh, big name entertainers. I mean, after all, what would there be out here? So it was just all local productions? Well, minstrel shows that they used to put on. Groups would get together. This little dance group that I'm telling you about that I played in on Saturday night dances. Then they got into radio. And I remember when the star came out and gave a demonstration of radio in Islington School. 
I think would be 1922, 23. Now, why would the Star be giving a demonstration on radio, Toronto well, Star newspaper? Well, well, they started uh, the first radio station in Toronto called CFCA, I think it was at that time. So they would be advertising their station, and we went out then, and everybody would go out and buy these little radios, and you had what they call the crystal things, or the little uh, gadget that you operated to try and get a, a station. You had earphones. And this was a little box, and I remember when we got to Pittsburgh, K-something, K we, we used to, and Ernie Barrett and I would listen, and you'd listen half the night trying to get stations in the States and different places like that. What would be your favorite, some of your, uh, of the favorite radio shows? Well, I remember they had Fibber McGee and Molly or, or something like that. Uh, I, I, I don't really remember. Now, you, you mentioned this play. What? I, I've forgotten what the play was that you mentioned. That well, you that, uh, that, uh, there was a, uh, the churches put on minstrel shows quite a little bit, and they would darken their faces, and, and they would, uh, my brother-in-law, Wilbert Marshall, and my brother-in-law, Reg Marshall, and, and uh, 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 Mercer Garbutt, and a few of these people, and this man, Scott, that I was telling you about, that played the piano around Islington quite a bit. And there was another man called Holmes that was quite a piano player, too. Uh, and uh, they would is that, on... is that Harris Holmes? No, no, no. This is uh, another chap. Yeah, I know Harris Holmes, but it wasn't Harris Holmes. Uh, and uh, so they had these minstrel shows. You wouldn't be allowed to do that today because that would be discrimination or you'd be talking against the black man or doing something. But they blackened their faces and they talked in the, in the southern dialect and they had their jokes and their dances and, and their songs. And this was before barbershop came in, so they would sing around at various groups. And what other sort of, uh, uh, would they have plays by every month, every two months, or minstrel shows, or how often would they happen? Oh, during the winter time, I, I don't think they would have uh, too many, maybe different churches. Maybe St. George's would put one on one time, and Islington would put one on another time. And not regular, not on a regular basis. There was a lot of socializing done in homes, particularly on Sunday night uh, after church, uh, as a young people would go to a home, possibly the Marshall home where my wife would play the piano and they would sing and, and that sort of thing. A lot of home entertainment. This section of the tape recording is an editorial comment by myself on the interview. As you will tell, be able to know by the number on it, this is interview number one, so it is lacking in some of the more some of the refinements. Two things that I noticed was that as uh, John Kendall was a city boy when he grew up, he really missed the city. Uh, noticeable when he mentioned the fact that the lights went out to Etobicoke when he came back from, from going to vaudeville on the Friday. Thanks for listening to the Etobicoke Historical Society's Oral History Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and like. If you wish to learn more about the work of our society, be sure to visit www.etobicohistorical.com. See you next month!